this morning to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible in front of you, you ought to find it on page 1272. Titus chapter 2. I really, uh, I really like music. I'm, I'm pretty limited in what I can do. Some people joke that the only instrument they can play is the radio. Um, I can do a little bit more than that, but not much. Um, so I'm, I'm easily impressed by people who can play different instruments and people who can harmonize and sing different parts in music. And I know if you're a music person, I might be oversimplifying things, but this is at least how my simple brain thinks of it, you have the, the melody, which is the main you know, part of the song. It's what most of us sing. It's what most of us think of as the tune of the song. Um, I won't do it, but we could probably all whistle the Andy Griffith you know, melody, the, the line of that song if we wanted to. That's, that's the idea of the melody. Then there's harmony. There's the different vocal and instrumental parts. But what's the most important thing about harmony? most important thing is it has to fit with the melody. It does not matter how dynamic your voice is, how skilled you are at playing an instrument. If you're not singing or playing uh, notes that are going to fit with the melody, then it's going to sound like a bunch of cats sitting on whoopee cushions, which is a really fun mental image to think about. God has designed the church to be in harmony. Um, That does not mean that everyone is the same. People can sing different notes, even play different instruments, figuratively speaking. But the key is that everything has to fit together. So it's important that we know what the melody line is, what it is that we all are supposed to stay in harmony with. And then once we know that, then we can strive to stay in harmony with it. I want to use that analogy this morning to help us grasp what Paul has to say here in Titus chapter 2. So let's read together. Titus chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. 
exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We confess that because this is from you, it carries with it your authority. So the authority does not come from me, from anyone else in this room, but from you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to hear this as your word that you've spoken to us. And God, help us to to humble ourselves under it, to to shudder before it in, in reverence. And God, that we would see here a beautiful picture of your grace that has appeared and of your glory that will appear one day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Titus is one of three letters in the New Testament that were written specifically to pastors. And a question that that you might have is, well, if it was written to pastors, why, Matt, would you bother standing up to preach it to us? Because most of us in this room are not pastors. In fact, Colby went to Children's Church, so right now I'm the only pastor in the room. So why don't I just go and read Titus by myself and y'all all go home? Well, because in God's wisdom, he saw fit to give this book not only to pastors, but to all of us. Because it's here. It's in the Word of God. And so in God's wisdom, he wants the whole church to eavesdrop on what he says to pastors. And so I want us to collect everything we're going to see this morning under two headings. We're going to think about the pastor's calling, and we're going to think about the church's calling, because those two things are very much intertwined. So we start with the pastor's calling. In verse 1, Paul speaks directly to Titus, and this is God's word to all pastors. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's not the only command given to pastors in the New Testament, but it's a very, very important one. And that phrase, teach what accords with sound doctrine, is one of those phrases that would be very easy to rush past. Because the temptation is to focus only on the sound doctrine part. But notice that God does not merely say, teach sound doctrine. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So to reuse the analogy I began with, God tells pastors to teach the church to live in harmony with sound doctrine. To live in such a way that, as he later says, that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. God intends for the behavior and the activity of the church to be a visual aid to the world to show them the grace of God. And so pastors must then teach sound doctrine, and they must also teach what accords with sound doctrine. So... We're supposed to live in harmony with sound doctrine. Now, again, it's not just teach them to live in harmony with one another. Because a church could be filled with people who reject sound doctrine. It could be filled with people who reject the authority of God's Word and who refuse to obey it, who function more like a country club than a church. 
and they could all be in harmony with one another. They could all be in agreement that this is what we want. We want to just get together and socialize. We're not going to worry about the Bible. We're not going to worry about singing the praise of God. We're just going to get together every Sunday in a building that we call a church. And they could all be in harmony with one another. But the, the command, the instruction is not to get along with one another. It's to get along with what God says in His Word, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So you could think of it this way. Sound doctrine, which is found in God's Word, is the melody. That's the, that God gives us the melody. And if we're singing a note that doesn't fit with that, then it's not God's problem, it's our problem. We're the ones who are out of line, not Him. Our lives are supposed to be in harmony with that melody. And so pastors are called to teach the melody, to teach sound doctrine, but also to teach what accords with sound doctrine, to teach the harmony. And God wants the church to hear Him saying this to pastors. He wants the church to know what the pastor's calling is. In Ephesians 4, God says that He gave pastors to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So my job is not to entertain you. I'm not like the, the comedian or the, the tap dancer who goes on the USO tour and stands up in front of the troops and just tries to take their mind off the battle for a little while. My job is to equip you to go back into battle. We're, we're in the war room. We're in the strategy room. That's what the church is supposed to be when we gather together, equipping you for the work of ministry. So that means that the pastor's job is not to sing everyone's part or to play everyone's instrument. My job is to equip the church by teaching them the melody, and then you live that out. You harmonize with the melody. You do the work of ministry along with me. That is the pastor's calling, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the pastor's calling is deeply intertwined with the church's calling. Paul gives Titus some examples of what he means by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. And the way he does that is he points to different age groups and gender groups within the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And the focus is twofold, how those individuals should act and how they should interact with one another. So the church's calling is twofold. First, the church's calling is to live, to act out what accords with sound doctrine. Again, Paul gives some examples of what he means by that. Older men are to be sober-minded, which means they are level-headed. They're not quarrelsome. They're not short-tempered. They're not given to excess, whether in terms of food or drink, sex, or money, work, or rest. Instead, they are to be dignified and self-controlled, sound in faith, which means they hold firm to the truth of God's Word. They should be sound in love, which means they serve and give uh, for the sake of others. They should be sound in steadfastness, which means that they persevere and they demonstrate stable, sustained faithfulness. They're able to keep a job and to, uh, to, to maintain spiritual discipline. Of older women, Paul says that they should be reverent in behavior, a phrase that implies that they live all of their life as if they were in the presence of God. That's what that phrase means, reverent in behavior. They're living in the, in the, before the face of God. Practically, it means they should not be slanderers or slave to much wine. It's, it's hard to walk around slandering and getting drunk if you're mindful of the fact that God's watching. 
that you're in God's presence. And the key characteristic that seems to unite everything is self-control. That's the characteristic that Paul mentions more than any other in this passage. Older men and older women should be self-controlled. They're not given to fits of anger or laziness, gossip or drunkenness or anything else that would reveal a lack of self-control. Instead, they are dignified and mature, disciplined and stable, loving and holy. But that's only part of the church's calling. It starts there. They have to listen to sound doctrine and to believe it and to live it, but then the church is also called to model what accords with sound doctrine. Look at the end of verse 3. Paul is still speaking to older women and he says, They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women have a responsibility to be holy and self-controlled. And they also have the God-given responsibility of teaching younger women to be and to do those same things. Now, quick side note about the phrase working at home. It's not the main point of the sermon, or, uh, but it is one that I don't want us to get tripped up on. Because you know, some people take Titus 2 to mean women should only work in the home and not have jobs outside the home. Paul's not saying that. Proverbs 31 uh, gives us the description of the ideal woman. And I'd encourage you to go read that sometime. In that description of the ideal woman, it speaks of her purchasing land and selling merchandise in the marketplace. Those are things that you would do in what we would call outside the home, in addition to looking well to the ways of her household. So that seems to be Paul's point here. Older women should teach younger women to be diligent within their home, regardless of whether they have an outside, quote, job or not. We might expect Paul to say something along the same lines about older men training younger men. Instead, in verse 6, he simply says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, it's important to remember, why, why does Paul explicitly say older women should teach younger women, but then he just says to Titus, urge the younger men to be self-controlled because Titus was an older man. And so he's, he's expecting us to have enough common sense to imply what he's saying, that because Titus is an older man, he shares the same responsibilities as all the older men in the congregation, which is they're to be self-controlled and dignified and mature, and they are to teach the younger men to be the same. We, we don't need to be too rigorous in the way we look at this because there's a way we could read this and we could sort of put all these different age groups into these silos and say, okay, well, older men have to be sound in faith, but the rest of us don't have to. Older women, uh, they're not supposed to get drunk, but the rest of y'all just feel free anytime you want. That's, that's obviously not the point, right? And that's why Paul uses the word likewise a few times in this passage. Notice in verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Paul's hinting at the fact that there's overlap here. Everyone should be striving for all of this, to live out what accords with sound doctrine and to model what accords with sound doctrine. The picture that Paul's painting is of a church body in which older men and older women are walking in step with the truth they confess 
and they are training younger men and younger women to do the same, which means that they have to be thinking about how they are acting, but also how they are interacting with others. But how does that work practically? I mean, what would that look like if it were to happen in our church? Let me start by pointing out how it is most likely not to happen. It is very unlikely that we are going to model this kind of church life if all we do is meet together once a week or twice a week or even three times a week and only have superficial encounters with one another. How are you doing? Fine. Did you get any rain this week? Yeah, got a little bit. Those are, those are good, perfectly good encounters, but they're surface level. For us to live out this biblical model of church life, we're going to need older men interacting with younger men and older women interacting with younger women in more than those superficial ways, in more organic and personal ways. Right after Rebecca and I got married, we were living in Auburn and we moved our membership to Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn. Rebecca had attended there some during her first couple of years in college. I was about to go on staff there. And uh, even after we moved our membership there, um, we still did not feel entirely at home. Even though I was about to be on staff there, we still did not feel like this is really our home. This is really our family. But then something started to change. There was a family in the church who invited us to their home one Sunday for lunch. They lived out in the country, and they said, why don't y'all come out to our house? We'll have lunch. Y'all can spend the afternoon with our family. They showed us their goats and their chickens. I got to try goat's milk for the first time and found out that I like goat's milk. Then a married couple just a few years older than us said, um, hey, we're going to be watching the Auburn game at our house and I'm going to be smoking a pork tenderloin. Why don't y'all come over and watch the game and you can eat some pork with us? And they didn't have to ask me twice. So we said, sure. We started going to their house and watching football on Saturdays. Then we had an older couple, old enough to be our parents, who started inviting us out to eat for, uh, uh, on Sunday nights after church. And they paid. And they would, you know, they'd say, okay, we're going to Chili's tonight or we're going to the Mexican restaurant. And we'd go eat with them and they would pay. Then I had a man named John Morgan who offered to meet with me and buy me breakfast. Uh, we started meeting every other Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. And we would just talk about life Sometimes he would give me advice. He wasn't pushy with it. If I wanted it, I could ask for it. Every time we ate, he would pray for me. Then two weeks later, we would meet again. He would ask me about the things we had talked about two weeks earlier, and he would pray for me again. One day, uh, my car had a flat tire. Now, I was 21 years old, and I, this might make you think less of me, but I don't care. Nobody had ever taught me how to change a flat tire. I was 21 years old. I didn't know how to change a flat tire. So what did I do? I called John Morgan. Hey, John, I've got a flat tire, and I don't know what in the world to do. I don't know if you're available, but I need some help. You know what he did? I don't know what he was doing, but he dropped whatever it was he was doing. He drove to where I was, and he taught me how to change a flat tire. Those were the moments when that church went from being the church we attended to being our home and our family. 
And any one of those people who reached out to us and loved us, they could have said, that's not my job. That's why we have pastors on staff. That's why we pay them to do that kind of ministry. I'm too busy. I don't have time. Maybe that's going to inconvenience me. But they didn't do that, praise God. They didn't look at it that way. They took an opportunity to invest in our lives and to invite us into their lives. It did not have to be formal. There was not a program. The pastor didn't get up and say, every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., I want you to find somebody to meet with. They just did it. It was just life. God is smart enough to know that we need that kind of life-to-life interaction with other believers. God knows that the church needs healthy, faithful pastors who teach and live with integrity and holiness, but God also knows that the church needs faithful men and women who will model self-control and holiness for younger men and younger women. And it's not one-sided. It's not that younger people need older people. It's that older people need younger people in their lives too. We need one another if we're going to be a healthy and faithful church. Last week I used the analogy of trying to chop down a tree with the blunt side of an axe. That you can, you can whack at a tree with the blunt side of an axe and when what you need is, is not to just keep trying not to work harder, but to work smarter, to flip the axe around. And when it comes to modeling what accords with sound doctrine, I believe that we need to flip the axe around, that there are ways we could work smarter and not just work harder. So I've been kind of doing some soul searching and praying and uh, taking stock, especially of how we do ministry as it pertains to older people interacting with younger people. And this is what I saw when I really sat down and started writing it down on paper. I saw that on Sunday school and Wednesday nights, I'm a visual person, so I like to visualize this kind of stuff, that during Sunday school and Wednesday nights, we have kids and youth partitioned off from adults And then during children's church, we have kids also partitioned off. Now, I certainly think that it is good for us to have times when kids and youth can learn in age-appropriate ways with others in their age range. But they also need times when they are around older men and older women because what they need is not just to be taught sound doctrine, but to see examples of what that looks like, to live it out. And what they need is not just to see me do it, but they need to see other people do it. God has given the task of teaching and modeling godliness, not just to pastors or to a handful of volunteers, but to the entire church. So we can keep doing things the way we've been doing them for a long time, or we can try to flip the act. So here are some things that we're going to try. We're going to try some things together. First, we are transitioning our Wednesday evening prayer meeting to include everyone, all ages in the same room. Rebecca is, has told me that she is intimidated to pray in front of me. We've been married for uh, over 11 years, and she doesn't like praying in front of me. She'll do it, but she's intimidated by it. And I have found 
that as much as I try for it not to be the case, that that's the way a lot of people feel. And so I thought, well, what if people aren't having to pray in front of me? What if I just kind of get into a little small group and people have opportunities to pray with others in smaller groups so that it's less intimidating and so that our kids and our youth and our young adults will be praying alongside older men and older women. And they'll be seeing examples, sustained exposure to examples of, quote, ordinary people who are listening to one another, caring for one another, thanking God, pleading with God, so that they're not just hearing me pray or Colby pray or Miss Donna or Miss Ashley pray, but they're, they're seeing other people and hearing other people pray together. Next Sunday, we're going to begin an experiment with Sunday school. We're going to have our children and our youth and our adult class all together in one room to study and to memorize a single verse or a brief passage of Scripture every Sunday morning. So if you're keeping count, that means that we're trying to take down some of the partitions. Every week there will be two opportunities, children's church and Sunday evening, when our kids will be able to learn with other kids in a way that's tailored to them. So two times every week, there will be that opportunity for them to be with only other kids where they'll be hearing a lesson that's tailored to them. And then there will also be two opportunities every week, Sunday school and Wednesday night, when they'll be able to interact with older men and older women in prayer and in scripture memory. I think that will help us be more balanced in the way we make use of our time together so that we're, we're not doing one or the other, but we're doing both and. Now, I realize some of you have misgivings and concerns about these changes. It's not what you're used to. It's not what I'm used to. Um, perhaps you're worried that things will be chaotic. And let me say to you, they probably will be, at least for a time. But I have found that the more real ministry is, the more messy it is. If, if ministry is always tidy and if we're always 100% comfortable, then we're probably not doing ministry the way we ought to do it. We need to be uncomfortable. It needs to be messy. It needs to be chaotic at times. And if we have to choose between having peace and quiet versus doing what God calls us to do, I hope that we will choose obedience over convenience. I'm not suggesting that these changes that we're trying are the only way we can be obedient, but I am saying that we cannot obey Titus 2 if the younger men and younger women in our church are constantly partitioned away from the older men and older women in our church and not interacting with one another beyond superficial encounters. So I want you to hear my heart when I say that what our church needs is not to adjust some programs. We need an adjustment of the culture of our church. Programs can be relatively easy to change, but culture is something that takes time and patience and endurance. But this is the way God has ordained for it to be. He has ordained for the church to function in such a way that the pastor is not the only model in the church, but that younger men and younger women need to see examples of ordinary people who love the Lord and love one another, who pray together and sing together and want to know and live more and more of His Word. I want to leave us with three practical steps that we can all take. Three practical steps we can all take. 
First, let's all strive to live in harmony with the gospel. Before any of us can be a model for anyone else, we need to be living out what accords with sound doctrine ourselves. You can use this passage as a test to help you assess whether you're doing that. So if you are an older man, you can look at what Paul says of older men and ask, am I living that out? If you're an older woman, look at what Paul says of older women and ask, am I living that out? If you're a younger woman, ask, am I living out what Paul says of younger women and of older women? Because that's what I should be striving toward. And if you're a younger man, then ask yourself, am I being self-controlled? And, and am I moving in the trajectory of what Paul says older men are to be? And I will let you decide for yourself whether you put yourself in the category of older or younger. I'll, I'll give you one caveat here. Do not wait until you're perfect. Because if you do that, you'll never get past step one. What others need from you is not a perfect example. They need to see someone who is repentant and striving after godliness. I think about this all the time with the way we're trying to raise our, our two boys. That if I was hoping that they would see a perfect example, then I've already messed that up. But you know what? Our boys are going to mess up too. They're going to make mistakes in their life. And you know what they need to see is they need to see what it looks like for a man to repent, to say, I'm sorry, I did something that was wrong. They need to see that. They need to see not just a model of, of the positive, but they need to see what do you do when you do something wrong? What do you do when you fall short? So what others need from you is not a perfect example. They need to see an example of repentance and forgiveness. Second, participate in the corporate life of the church. It is so simple. Yet sometimes we need to be reminded of the simple things because it's easy to become self-centered. We think about all that's going on in our own lives and we turn inward. We, we, we curve inward. But don't just think about church in terms of what you are getting. Think in terms of what you can give. Think about others who might need you to encourage them with your presence, with your singing, with your praying, with your kindness. Let's be good stewards of the time that God has given us by participating consistently and faithfully in the week-to-week -week life of the church. Third, invite others into your life outside these walls. Invite others into your life outside these walls. I want us to, I hope this is not too cheesy, but I, I'm serious. I want us just to take a moment and look around the room right now. I want you to do that. Look around the room at the other people who are here. Every Sunday, by God's grace, we usually have a handful or two of of young adults. And when I say young adults, here's what I mean. I mean, they're old enough they can drive, so you're not going to have to go and pick them up and give them a ride. They may or may not be married yet, but they don't have kids yet. So they've got a lot of free time. What would it be like if you invited one of them or a couple of them to your home for a meal? Have you ever done that? Or what, what would it be like if today... Today, you said, 
I'm going out to eat. You know, you're young. You don't have much money. You want to come eat with me? Listen, unless they are really, really, really busy, they're not going to turn that down. What would it be like if you invited them to go fishing with you? Or to watch football at your house? Or to go shopping? Or whatever it is that ladies like to do together. What would it be like if you asked them how you could pray for them? Not just, how you doing? How was your week? But, how can I pray for you? And what would it be like if they told you how you could pray for them and you actually put your hand on their shoulder and you prayed for them right then and there? What would it be like if you checked in on how their school was going or how their job was going? What would it be like if you became someone they could reach out to if they needed help, if they needed to know how to change a flat tire or how to bake a pound cake or how to fry cornbread or how to whatever, fill in the blank? What difference would that make in their lives and what difference would that make in your life? The church has the potential to be the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth. Sadly, it's far too easy to focus inward on ourselves. But Jesus died not just so that we could be saved individuals. He died to purchase a community of repentant sinners who are striving to live out what we profess to believe and what He has called us to be. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And I want to close by telling you the thing that is most foundational here. You may have already closed your Bible, and that's fine, because I kind of gave you the, the clue that it was time to. But in Titus 2.11, Paul uses the word for, which means because. Why, why, why all this? Because, this is the reason why, because the grace of God has appeared. It doesn't mean that God wasn't gracious and then He started being gracious when it says that the grace of God has appeared, it means that at one time it had been hidden and now it's visible. When did it become visible? It became visible in the person of Christ. And the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So we live in between two appearings. We live in between the appearing of God's grace when Jesus came in humility to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, and to die on the cross, to give Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for His own possession. We live between that appearing and the appearing of His glory, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So look back and look Forward. Look back to the grace of God that has appeared and look forward to the glory of God that has appeared. He is coming, not in humility, but in glory and power and authority to judge the living and the dead. So let's live as if He's coming. 
Let's live as if He has come, and let's live as if He is coming again. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank You that Your grace has appeared and that Your glory will appear. And Lord, we know and confess that we live in between those times. And Lord, Lord Jesus, as we read earlier, You who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we confess, Jesus, that You did not just give of Yourself so that we could live as we please, but so that we could live for You. And I pray that You would help us to do that as individuals and help us to do that collectively as Your church. That we would live for You, that we would live out what accords with sound doctrine, and that we would invite others into our life as well. Help us to be obedient to this. Help us to trust what you have said and help us to walk in what you have said. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Number five.